This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 49. Clarity creates capacity. Think about that. People who are clear about where the company is going, clear about the strategic priorities of the organization, clear about what their role is responsible for, clear about accountabilities, clear about the North Star, so they have some agency in creating the pathway there. Those people thrive in the workplace because they are clear. How does clarity create capacity in an organization? Why is the future of work about culture and connection, not policies and programs? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest today is Wagner Denoso. Wagner is an expert on the future of work, an executive coach, consultant, and HR startup advisor to early stage companies. Prior to going out on his own, Wagner held senior leadership roles in talent at IBM, and most recently at Prudential, where he was the vice president of organizational effectiveness and the head of capabilities for the future of work. It was in this role at Prudential, where he was instrumental in designing the organization of the future and the innovative HR solutions to support this change. Wagner is truly an innovative leader who thrives on challenging the status quo, and this conversation will definitely challenge and inspire you to think differently. In my conversation with Wagner, we discussed why he believes the future of work is all about culture and connection, not programs and policies, why he believes HR is becoming more of a business driver and less of a support function, his perspective on the promise and challenge of becoming a skills-based organization, why organizations need to invest in leadership skills for their early career talent, and why teams, not individuals, are the new unit of value creation for organizations and much, much more. Wagner, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this. We're excited to talk with you today and also hear more about your unique perspective on the future of work. But before we get into all of that, I want to start off and talk a little bit about your career. And you've held talent and HR leadership roles at IBM and most recently at Prudential. But you didn't start your career in HR. Tell us about how you decided that this was the career for you. Actually, I was the pioneer of a nonlinear career pathway because I immigrated to the United States right after college and I started doing what I had to do to survive, learn English and all that. But actually, I started as a social worker and with social work, gave me such a good knowledge of people, people's behaviors, how emotional development impacts your life. And I went to work for an employee assistance program. Early on, I was talking to leaders, HR, people who had problems with their teams. And and definitely there was an opportunity there. This was many years ago. And I said, I can help these HR managers to solve all these problems through training, development, consulting, and coaching. And that was an easy way into HR. And that's and so from there, from social work, you actually then 
land your first big break? What was that in HR? Well, in HR, I left the employee assistance program doing my own thing. I was doing psychotherapy at night and then coaching during the morning and helping a lot of clients in New York City. And I moved to an hour north of New York City and IBM had its headquarters right 20 minutes away from me. I said, yeah, I need a corporate experience. And I just knock on the door and I wrote a letter to a talent and diversity officer there. And the rest is history. It was amazing how one letter to that gentleman took me all the way to an organizational leadership position. It was amazing. That is amazing. But kudos to you for writing that letter, taking the initiative. And I think it's probably hard, you know, for a lot of us, I am born in the United States, English is my first language, for you to come from Brazil, speak Portuguese, learn the language. Yeah, that's a lot you've accomplished. What has that taught you about leadership and your own self during that time period? Yeah, I'm very grateful about how much I have accomplished, but I, I don't discard the experiences that I had because it gave me so much more empathy for people gave me so much more opportunities to see the world from the other side because people used to make fun of me. People used to uh, do a lot of tricks that we know that's a power play. And for me, it was always important in HR to treat people equally and to really see the value in every single member of the team, always being empathic towards whatever is happening to somebody's life because you never know what's impacting their performance. So all those experiences were incredibly valuable to me. So I'm very grateful. Well, not only do you have empathy, but obviously you're really intelligent and a hard worker because you were able to have an amazing career at IBM. And then more recently, you went to Prudential and you were VP, Head of Capabilities for the future of work, which is probably one of the coolest titles I've ever heard of. Uh, can you tell us more about that role and yeah. what you're trying to accomplish around the future of work? And I tell you one thing, I wasn't planning to leave IBM. IBM treated me very well, but this is one of those things. You try something that is not available anywhere else. When they came to me with the opportunity for leading the capabilities for future of work, this was in 2019, early 2019, pre-pandemic. It was an incredible opportunity to jump into something that nobody had that title. I didn't know anybody who had that title. So it's one of those things that actually you need to start experiencing what you tell people that's the new way of working. That's the new way of building your career. Because to me, it was my curiosity led me to Prudential. And that role was incredibly important because was building a team from scratch we quickly understood that we cannot throw new ideas into people without explaining why this could be valuable to them. So when you talk about the future of work at Prudential, the first thing that we did was a small team really focusing on enabling everyone in the organization to understand why should I pay attention to my skills? Why should I have a skills-based resume? Why is it important to have a presence in the digital platforms like LinkedIn and so forth? We did a whole enablement in educating people why it's important to pay attention to your skills in a skills-based organization, a skills-based economy. Then we implemented quickly in three months, 
And I think this is the secret sauce of transformations. You do it fast because otherwise you get entangled in too many conversations. So when I got there, in three months, we had the telemarketplace in place. We are already piloting. We did career services where people can talk openly with somebody confidentially three times a year for half an hour. I implemented the workforce strategy for analytics. We did learning for upskilling and reskilling. And we quickly solved the problem of skills because with the telemarketplace, people understood why they're there. The CEO and his direct reports were the first ones to create a profile. So the whole role modeling and understanding why this is important was key to our success. And we were very successful. But then comes org design, work design, organizational capabilities, something that people are not talking much about, but it's key to understand how to deconstruct roles and, and skills. All that was done very quickly. So I'm very proud of that role. That was great. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. A couple of things I'd love to talk a little more about. One, the comment you made around moving quickly and implementation and that being the key transformation. Tell us more about why you believe that's true. I believe it's true because I experienced it. At IBM, it was a huge company, global company. When I got there, I quickly understood what was my mission. My mission was to transform management experience, to transform leadership experience, because we were going through a transformation. The transformation had to be done quickly. So it was obvious to me that waiting for permission was not going to work, because waiting for permission means you're asking layers upon layers of opinions and people with their own biases, introducing new content, and becomes a little diluted. Transformations become diluted when you take too long to make decisions. So for me, it's about decision-making. Think about decision-making. The fastest decisions might not be the best one, but well-informed decision-making data-driven decision-making that you can do as quickly as possible is the best way forward. That's a unique perspective because I think when you talk about change management, we want to make sure we hear people's perspectives and get their buy-in. But you're right, depending on how important that change is and how strategic it is and how quickly it needs to be implemented, that can really slow things down. Yeah. So there's probably a balance there, but I love the fact that if you're moving that quickly, it's like, hey, we get on the train, it's going, yeah. you know, otherwise you're going to be kind of left behind. Yeah. It sounds like you were doing a little bit of that prudential, but there was also, you had good leadership involvement there. The fact that the CEO and your CHROs and the C-suite yeah. were the first in the talent marketplace is yes. incredible. I'm curious about the career counseling. Was that actually Prudential team members? Should we talk to other Prudential team members about thinking about their career and how to think about skills? We thought it was so important that actually we hire a team. It's a small team. It's a small team of what we call career partners. And the career partners are, are there to help you understand how can you create value for your next role? How can you create value for your career? How can you create a system for yourself to upskill yourself, to be aware of the skills in the industry. So we're basically helping people, coaching people. I think it's more about coaching. Coaching them specifically about their unique trajectory in the company and the opportunity to upskill, reskill, 
and the opportunity to go across. I tell you this, I have a group called the Talent Catalysts at Prudential, and they were actually doing the execution of what we call six points of engagement, work design, capabilities, skills, all those good things, change management. And most of the people on the team came from finance, came from communications, came from operations. They were not HR folks because actually skills you can teach. What you cannot teach is the attitude towards creating value for the organization. And somebody who has that curiosity, the courage to cross from function A to function B, they already have a capability that I'm looking for, is to see the future as better than present. And that's the key idea here. We've also said the future of work is about culture and connection, not programs and policies. Tell us more about your vision for the future of work. I think this goes with what we are seeing right now. I think a lot of our leaders, executive leaders, are trying to find a place where comfort meets operational excellence. But the problem is that comfort does not give you the opportunity to create innovative ideas. So when I talk about Let go of the attachment that we have created towards programs, policies, processes. You see at the end of the year in 2023, for example, you're going to see a huge pressure over managers who have people who are in distributed location. You're going to see the pressure from CEOs who want people back in the office to account for their presence as part of the performance. I know it's coming. It, it is coming because that's how, where people go. People go to attachments that they have that feels very solid and comfortable because they know the process. What I'm trying to advocate for is allow yourself to think different. Relying on processes, policies, and programs to get a sense of progress is an outdated view of the dynamic world that we are in. We are in a very dynamic world of work. And you have to start thinking with all these multiple talent pools available, how do you harvest the best skills when you need it, at the time you need it, and let go of the attachment to contract full-time employees, for example. So what I'm saying is connections is about connecting with the people that is in front of you. And that's why manager development, I think manager um, is still evolving the role of the manager, but I think the manager is key here because they need to motivate their people to think more broadly about how can I add value to this organization. And I think that's why I talk about connections and culture because creating a culture of empowerment is going to help your people be even better at delivering value. Well, when you're talking about that, it made me think of an older saying around compliance versus commitment. Yes, And we've talked about the idea of people having that emotional connection. They're motivated internally. But a lot of times in our companies, we fall back to the lowest common denominator with the programs, with the policies. So we've got a long way to go. And I think you know, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but you know, a recent guest said to me, we've shifted where we work, but not how we work. And it really stuck yeah. with me. With the pandemic, we talked about now it's return to the office or I'm hybrid or I'm remote. But we haven't talked about how we do things differently and yeah. getting the work done. It's like we don't want to have that conversation because that's a hard conversation to have because we won't be comfortable because it's so new and different. 
I love that you're saying that because every time we start having the dialogue, I think allows people to start thinking or at least contemplating a new way of thinking. And I think that's important for change management. People say change our behavior. We try so hard to change people's behaviors. Nobody changes anybody's behaviors. I come from a clinical background. I used to be a psychotherapist. And we learned very early on that you start where the client is, of course. You help them understand the journey to healing. But that journey is unique to yourself. Nobody's going to make you change anything unless you contemplate the opportunity to change. And that's where we are failing. We still do leadership development, for example, trying to change leaders' behaviors. Oh, we need to change their mindset, their behaviors. No, what we need is clarity. And I tell you this because I love this sentence that I created last year, and it's resonating with a lot of people. Clarity creates capacity. Think about that. People who are clear about where the company is going, clear about the strategic priorities of the organization, clear about what their role is responsible for, clear about accountabilities, clear about the North Star so they have some agency in creating the pathway there. Those people thrive in the workplace because they are clear. Now, move towards what we are seeing today. Half of the executive says, oh yeah, come back to the office. Half of the other executive says, no, you can stay home. And then other leaders, there's so much inconsistency in the system that people are not really clear where we are going. Is my job safe? For example, there is no clarity in this ecosystem and that creates a lack of capacity. And I hear a lot from my clients, oh, people don't have capacity. They don't have capacity to learn. They don't have more room. Actually, if you stop being perfectionist, you can create capacity. Stop obsessing two hours a week on those PowerPoints. Stop overanalyzing things to make the data sound good to your executives. Stop trying to massage the reality and start helping people cope with it. That's a very different value proposition. You've also done a lot of thinking about future work from the HR perspective, the HR function. And can you share your thoughts on why you think HR is ready for a transformation and what that looks like? I think it's happening across all functions, to be honest. All functions are trying to figure it out. Can we do better work simply? Can we strategize new ways of working with the businesses and our partners? Actually, what's happening is that the ecosystem of the business is expanding so people can start thinking, what are the resources available to me? It's not only your teams or full-time employees, but partners, the fractional workers that are coming. And there is a lot of friends of mine are fractional professionals. They work with several organizations. So what's happening is, is that we are creating the conditions for people to start thinking differently about their functions. HR included, because HR now, to be honest, I think they're becoming business value drivers as opposed to functional corporate function. Because if you think about the skills, if you think about organizational capabilities, the work design that we need to do now for the new world of work, role design, I know we're still stuck with the compensation dogmas, 
and compensation surveys and the whole taxonomy discussion is becoming more complex. But I think there is a way in HR that we can start integrating COEs, for example, because we have created a lot of silos of expertise, but we are not focusing on the business solutions and opportunities to bring these teams together, integrate these capabilities to deliver what the business are asking of us. And I think that's the opportunity. And I think there's so much opportunity for HR that we need to start small and scale as we go, because there's a huge opportunity right now, especially with digital transformation that we're seeing. Think about the roles in HR that are emerging. The head of digital strategy. Some companies have it, some don't. But you need to create an employee experience that's frictionless. How do you do that? You need digital platforms that connect with each other, speak to each other, and you have consistency in the access that you give people to data, technology, and the information they need. So we don't need people anymore to translate, communicate, and, and, and try to interpret things. People are very smart. And I tell CEOs and CHROs sometimes, don't underestimate your people. The intelligence of your people might be greater than you expect to be. And I think that's how we should treat people. A lot of good points in there. And I think on the HR transformation side, I think two things are happening. One, I think we are becoming a more of a business driver, creating more value than we had before. And I think the pandemic's really kind of given us a little bit of highlighted that seat at the table and said, hey, this is what yeah. we can do and we can add value across the board. And I think, honestly, the quality of HR people in general has continued to rise as more business people have come into it or HR folks have a business perspective. But I also think we now have a couple of different things you know, coming at us, right? Whether it's AI and the digital transformation, no one really has that figured out yet. But to solve business problems, we're going to have to think cross-functionally. So I think the best HR leaders are really across that silo like you talked about. Because if you're just bringing a compensation perspective or a talent management perspective or the HR business partner perspective and trying to solve that business problem, it doesn't usually work. Just like you can't create that consistent employee experience. And I think that's a big opportunity because those silos start to happen, especially in big organizations. We want to have a group, but there's in-group and out-group. And so I think the best CHROs and HR leaders are really breaking those down and creating cross-functional teams. And it sounds like that's what you're doing a lot at Prudential with that talent catalyst group that you had. And I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, you need to start thinking about squads. When we think about agile organizations, squads come with multiple capabilities to solve major problems for their clients. And to be honest, there is one upskilling that I wish HR leaders would take on is about human development, emotional development, and basic human behavior in the social environment. That's what we learn in social work school. Human behavior in the social environment. What does that mean? How does the social context influence how you behave in different contexts at work, at home? And I think HR leaders could benefit from that because that's how you influence people. That's how you start managing culture differently because culture is not a, it's not a program, it's an outcome. And the outcome is depends on how you treat people, depends on how you manage understanding the emotional development of people. Because let's be real, most decisions today we make 
are emotionally driven and sometimes unconscious. Unconscious bias became the big thing five years ago, but it's dying a little bit because nobody knows how to deal with the unconscious behavior because they're unconscious. But as long as HR becomes more attuned to the idea that subconscious behaviors are driving actions, I think we could be even better at what we do. I love it. And I agree. My favorite saying around this is that people make decisions for their reasons, not yours. Yes. And good leaders tolerate the opinions of others, but they act on decisions they come to themselves. And so if you bring that from an HR perspective, always thinking about why would someone make this decision? What's really, how are they really thinking about it? It takes a lot of empathy and it's not easy sometimes to get in that headspace, but you'll be right more times than you are wrong. And at least you can try to figure that out. And if you can't, you can always ask, why would you make this decision to your business leader? What's in your, what's in your thought process around this? What's holding you back? Why do you want to do this? Like that's what you need to kind of learn for the, the psychology of it, at least from an individual level. Organizationally, it gets people more challenging when you're talking about culture change. But I think that you're right, the social sciences and what you kind of did being a social worker and doing that kind of therapy yeah. early on to meet people where they're at was very helpful. And we probably need more of that in the field, for sure. It, it helped me tremendously. You've done pretty well, I think, over your career. So the, I think it did work out. The other thing I want to talk to you about, because I think you have a lot more experience actually trying to implement this and do this than most people. There's a lot of talk about work redesign, skills-based organization. It's a super hot topic in HR. Yet you said we really don't know how to design jobs. And I'm curious around why do you feel this way and how can we improve in this area? Because I think it's not nobody's fault, but I think it's very hard for you to shift the way you enter your kitchen and start cooking different recipes. You are used to your utensils, you're used to your machines, your tools, everything. So you already engage in a recipe making, thinking about what you have and how you, you usually do things. The problem is that right now, HR is so overwhelmed with solving immediate problems with the unique perspectives of individuals who have their personal challenges, with the groups that are having difficulties with the business, and the overall efficiency bandwagon that everybody's jumping on is creating a lot of work for a lot of people, but it's not solving for the critical problem of simplifying complexity. It's not. What we are going to see, I think, is that the emergence of critical initiatives because we are letting go of people because we need to be more efficient. The first thing that comes to mind is usually headcount, but we are not re-engineering the processes. So think about reducing the capacity without re-engineering processes. What, what do you have left? A lot of overwhelming feelings across the function. So I'm thinking that we are going to have to do critical initiatives that quickly transform the work in the way things are done. Why do I say it's hard for HR and for everyone actually to change job design? Because we are afraid of missing key capabilities and skills in our job descriptions. If you look at the job descriptions today and it's been proven, we ask for 130% of what we really need. 
And then people are very dissatisfied that we are not asking them to fully utilize their skills because we are afraid of not filling up that description with all the potential skills that I want for that job. So that intrinsically, there is a problem of fear that we are very afraid of changing the way things are because we don't know if we're going to change for the better or there will be repercussions. That goes with psychological safety. That goes with the culture. That goes with the hierarchical organizations that we have today. Everybody's afraid of misstepping and being reprimanded for it. So what I'm trying to advocate for is don't try to buy the library when you're looking for a collection of books. If you're thinking about taxonomy, taxonomy is driving everybody crazy. Josh Burson just wrote an article that was fabulous, actually. He identified that the reality is really more complicated because the taxonomies that we have available to us today, they are not consistent. Language is very different. You can have a common language of several taxonomies to work for all these organizations that are trying to figure it out. I know organizations, I won't name names, but some organizations are definitely saying, for the jobs that we know we are always going to have, and they, those are like core jobs that we have, yes, keep going. Keep doing what we are doing. What we need is to focus on what is the new capabilities we are building? What might be the new roles that we are creating for the value creation that we are trying to create? And how might we solve for that by deconstructing? And that's the key word. Deconstructing organizational capabilities. I give a very quick example. If you're trying to create an omni-channel, frictionless customer experience, the first thing you do is not to hire the person who had the experience in another competitor. He's the head of client experience. No, it's about know your customers, know what it means to bring your customer to the table to understand what frictionless means for them, what is omni-channel means for them, and start bringing people collectively, a diverse team of design thinking folks to just start co-creating this capability. What this capability might look like looks very different from the competitor. So don't try to bring one person that's going to solve for your problems. Try to co-create solutions that actually deconstruct that capability into technology platforms, organizational design, work design, process reengineering. And then you talk about skill clusters and that org design might not look like what you have today because you're talking about value creation. We are not talking about hierarchical organizations. So that's why I think we are not ready yet, but it's coming. So I think we're on the right path. I think it makes sense. I think we'll need more investment in technology. And I think certain organizations will be able to embrace this a lot easier than others. Um, but the general thought, like you said, deconstructing the jobs, thinking about core capabilities and how that would drive value and not, you know, trying to buy that capability from one person, but to build it internally is the right approach. It's just a harder, longer approach. It's easier to hire a search firm, bring in that leader and feel like you're done and check the box, right? So <laughs> we're a little bit lazy sometimes. Now, there's another topic, Wagner, that I wanted to talk to you about because you are really passionate about this topic and you see there's a big opportunity that's missing that we're not investing in the leadership skills of that early career talent. Why do you think this is a missed opportunity and what should we be doing to address this much more than we are today? Thank you for the question. I think we are missing in the 
present continuous sense of the verb, we are missing because everything that has happened in the last five years have drastically changed the way people perceive their lives, their their work lives. And now people are talking about work-life harmonization, for example. So everything is leading me to think that well-being, for example, has to be integrated in the talent strategy. It's not an event. We treated diversity and equity and inclusion as an event. We keep celebrating the month of this, the month of that, but that's the extent of it. We are not moving the needle by just raising our hands when there is an event. Well-being is the same, and leadership is the same. Leadership cannot be reserved to a very few people who became managers, for some reason or not, or for those who are in executive positions. It does not make sense. Leadership is the core skills for anybody entering the new workforce or the new talent ecosystem, as we are calling, because they're going to be dealing with the partners. They're going to be dealing with the fractional workers coming to their teams. They're going to be dealing with the very diverse teams because demographics, at least in the United States, are changing rapidly. We are missing the opportunity to build the personal capabilities, human capabilities, that will allow people to be very successful in their careers. From an individual contributor who starts learning how to self-manage in a team meeting, how to manage the expectations of others, how to start building empathy towards people who are not meeting their expectations. All this can be incredibly valuable for somebody entering the workforce today, especially think about those who didn't have the last three years to learn how to enter the workplace, to learn how to establish social capital. To learn on organizational network analysis is another thing coming up too. We owe this new generation an opportunity to learn leadership skills from the beginning of their careers, because otherwise we are going to be doing a disservice to a lot of people. And you suggest that companies start to have leadership skills or training for entry-level, first-role career folks. Yes. And talk about these skills. Well, because if you think about the skills that you need, you need self-management skills. You start leading yourself, understand your emotional background, what happens and what happened in the past that's translating to actions today, behaviors. All this is really important for the well-being of the individual and for the success of the individual. Then we can talk to them about, do you aspire to lead others? If that's an aspiration that you have, you might be a team lead, you might be leading a practice, you don't need to be a manager, but you need to start helping people understand what's required to lead others, because you have to let go of yourself to lead others. You have to let go of your own ambitions and aspirations in terms of your individual needs and start thinking collectively. So it, it changes the way you have to manage that. And then leading organizations, that's a totally different ballgame. I've been advising a lot of startups, and it's fascinating to see how startups are thinking and envisioning talent strategy or organizational leadership. And it's beautiful to see that there is a whole movement towards distributed power for distributed teams. We are going to need to accept that we need to distribute power to distributed teams. And with that, we democratize leadership. 
Well, I think you're really right in the money that that's a great investment for organizations to help the next generation's early career talent to start to become leaders because there's really no downside to that, right? As they become better, more effective, more productive, likely they might stay with that company longer because they feel like they're being invested in. But number two, they become better at their jobs, which gives their bosses and managers more leverage, more opportunity to grow and do other things. So I think that's a really good point of view. And I think it's one that's not being talked about enough. So thank you for that. And sticking on early career talent and specifically next generation HR leaders, what career advice would you have to not only ensure they survive, but they thrive in the future? It's interesting that you're asking me this question because I love helping early career folks and HR leaders specifically. They come with so much passion for helping people and making people successful. And I love that. I would have to say two things. One is what I love to say always, be engaged, not attached. The moment you get attached to the processes, to the way things have always been done, you attach your own ideas, you're not allowing for this divergent thinking to come and help you grow different skills, you're going to be doing a disservice to yourself. So be engaged, fully engaged, because the flow is, um, what's his name? Um, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, he, he was a psychologist who talked about the flow. The flow comes when you organize work where people are using the best of their skills, being challenged to use the skills to their limit of capability and being challenged by the work that you give to them. That's when you enter the flow where actually you get excited about doing things. So you need to be there. So being engaged, that's the feeling you get. Being attached, you start isolating yourself and not allowing different divergent thinking to come in. So be engaged and not attached. But there's another one. You need to understand that the future of work is establishing a new paradigm. Teams are the new unit of value. I truly believe teams are the new unit of value. Don't think you're going to be hiring the hero leaders anymore. We're not hiring hero leaders anymore. We are really being very intentional about how we compose teams for mission-based teams and initiatives that we need to get it done. So those are the two things. Wagner, last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? This might be a little more difficult to digest, but I've been thinking about the idea that to find your way through the future, you need to let go of yourself a little bit. I think any professional today needs to start being more conscientious. I think consciousness is an important piece about their role within the collective leadership that we are trying to build here because organizations need collective mindsets, collective leadership to survive and thrive. And for the new generation HR, I hope they understand that they do not lose their self-confidence by being more open to others. Actually, it's the opposite. You build more self-confidence knowing that you can, you can tolerate others. You can be open to new ideas without losing your sense of self. So this is the key idea. Get out of yourself to be more attuned to the future because your career depends on that. And I love what you said earlier about engaged, 
but not attached. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about there. Be engaged with who you are, but not attached because it will change as time and your skills will grow. And obviously you need to be open to new ideas and new people and be curious about things around you. Vlogger, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Future of HR podcast. Thank you so much, JP. I really enjoyed the dialogue and I think this is an important dialogue to have. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Wagner for sharing his passionate insights in the future of work and why clarity creates capacity. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with David Buckmaster, who's a total rewards leader who's worked at Starbucks, Nike, Yum! Brands, and currently leads the function for Stability AI. He's also the author of a terrific book, Fair Pay, How to Get a Raise, Close the Wage Gap, and Build Stronger Businesses. In my conversation with David, we're going to go deep into compensation what's working, what can be improved, and even how to ask for your next raise. You won't want to miss this one. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.